Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Um, I do want to say that book is a phenomenal book. Sarah and I did it for our premarital counseling, and it has made uh, a lot of difference in our marriage. And uh, I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, if you're thinking about married, have been married for 50 years, uh, I think it's it's a, a valuable resource. Um, so, I'll say a quick word about why I'm down here. Uh, I'm sure many of you are wondering and may ask. And, and I'll just say uh, quickly that uh, a f- my former mentor and pastor said in, in talking about preaching that uh, we want to bring the congregation into the kitchen, is the way he described it. And, and basically what he meant by that is, is allow uh, you guys to see, uh, when, as we're preaching, what why we're going through the passage the way we're doing, to, to kind of communicate better with you guys. And, and as Mike and I talked this week about uh, this sermon, and you know, normally you see me up front behind the pulpit, paging through a manuscript and, and reading, and, and you know, sometimes having eye contact and sometimes not. Uh, we, we want to be able to communicate God's Word to the best of our abilities. And that's, that's why Mike does what he does, and that's why I, when I'm up here, uh, love doing this so much is because we love communicating God's word, and so uh, we decided this morning, and not saying this is going to happen every week, but uh, to to kind of bring me down here and and to help us communicate and learn God's word together better, and so that's that's our goal. Um, so this morning we are gonna, if you saw in your bulletins, gonna be looking at the end of Philippians chapter three, verses seventeen through twenty-one, and. I think this morning what we're going to see is, is that this section of Scripture in Philippians is kind of the, the last bit of meat that Paul puts in this book before uh, he begins in chapter 4 the, the, the typical closing greetings and, and say this to this person and give this person my love and uh, you know, kind of closes the book out in typical fashion. The, the end of chapter 3 is, is the last a kind of chunk of meat. And, and we know that uh, partially because of what's in chapter 4. But verse 1 of chapter 4 says, uh, if you read it, thus do all this, uh, you know, kind of summarizing Paul, urging us to look back at everything we've looked at in, in, the, in the first three chapters. And so, so in light of that, I think, and when, when Mike gave me this passage to preach, I, I asked him, I said, are you sure you want me to do that section? Because I think it's the, the climax of the book. I think it's the pinnacle point of, of Paul's argument in the book of Philippians. And You know, you've been preaching through this book. Are, are you sure you don't want to take that section? And, and he graciously said, no, go ahead. If, if you think that's what it is, well, then why don't you take it since, uh, since you, you're going to care about it so much? And so, so I think that's what we see this morning uh, is is the, the pinnacle point of Paul's argument, kind of taking a lot of the themes and a lot of the things that he's put forward to the Philippians and summing them up in, in just a few verses and, and drawing his argument together. So if you have your Bibles, would you open up to Philippians chapter 3? And we'll read together verse, verses 17 through 21. And Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you 
And now tell you, even in tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray. A gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You so much for this study that we've been able to have in Philippians. We thank You for Your Word, for Your truth that is universal, that applies to all people at all times. Father, we thank You that it is living and that it is active and that actually it impacts our hearts through faith in Christ and through the work of Your Spirit working in us. And we ask this morning that as we go through this passage, as we uncover the truth, as we seek to understand it, that you would change our hearts by it. I pray that uh, you would be with my words and keep me from error and give me your truth to speak. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for those of you who like a road map like me, to where we're going. Let me just kind of give a, a brief overview of what we'll be looking at this morning. So first, in verse 17, Paul gives two commands to this church in Philippi. Two, two commands. And then, in verse 18, he explains why he gives those two commands. He doesn't want to just say things for the sake of th- saying things. He wants to give reasons for making those commands. And then... In verses 19 through 21, Paul makes a very stark contrast between two groups of people that he's comparing in the first two verses, in verses 17 and 18. So he makes this contrast, and I think for our passage this morning, this contrast is kind of his main point. The main thing he wants us to take from this is seeing these two groups of people, learning a little bit about who they are, and then calling us to decide which group of people we want to be in. And that's, I think, our task this morning. Ultimately, if there's one thing that that I want us to get out of this passage, it's examining our hearts and deciding who in this passage we want to be. And and we'll look at, at the two groups of people and what that means. But I think... Uh, that's, that's the task. Do we believe what Paul is saying? Do we, does it make sense to us, and do we believe it? And then, do we take that and actually make it applicable to our lives? And that's, that's the task of every week, every time we sit through a sermon, is do we believe what's being said in God's Word, and do we actually want to take that into our lives and apply it? And so that's what we want to do this morning. And so... Without further ado, let's look at what Paul says in verse 17. Brothers, join him in imitating me. And I think the first word set in verse 17 is actually an important one. The word brothers. 
Now normally, when Paul sees his brothers, he maybe is uh, taking a, a main point and accentuating it, and saying, you know, brothers, I want you of all things to know this. Or oftentimes, and I think one of the things he's doing here is, is including himself in with his hearers, saying that, that we are of the same family, and that's what he's doing. He's, for very specific reasons, identifying himself with the church in Philippi. He's saying, we are the same group. We are of the same family. And so what I'm about to tell you is important because we're of the same family. Remember that. And so that's why he starts with brothers, because he's identifying himself with his hearers. And now, the first command that Paul gives, join in imitating me. Now, for this command, our, our English translations get it about the best that they can, but there's something very unique going on in the Greek. Paul actually makes up a word for this. This join in imitating me is actually one word in the Greek, and it's a compound word. And the main command, the main verb is actually imitate. The thing that Paul really wants us to know is to imitate. But in front of that, he smashes on a with, the preposition with. So he makes up this compound word. So the literal translation is imitate with or with imitate. It's kind of hard. You can see English translations have a hard time figuring out what to do with that. And I think join in imitating me gets it kind of about as close as you can get, can get it. You can maybe say imitate me together if that makes more sense. But the, the, the point is clear. First, the main command is imitate. That's the one thing Paul wants us to know. But, but the side point is that this is done together. This is a corporate command that Paul is giving. It's, it's for us as a church body. You know, one of the things we see throughout the whole New Testament and throughout the whole Bible is the importance of God's people gathering together. The writer of the Hebrews says that, you know, you should not forsake gathering together, as some are in the habit of doing. And, and why is that? Well, well Paul says here that, that this imitation command is something that is pivotal to be done when we're together. We can't live out this command. We can't, in fact, live out the Christian life if we are not gathering together, if we're not meeting together with one another, if we're not hearing from God's Word together, if we're not uh, sharpening each other, as, as the Scripture says, if we're not encouraging one another, if we're not challenging one another. These are all things that are done when we meet together. And in fact, the Christian life can't be lived at all if we're not gathering together. And so Paul First thing says, when you do this, do it together. And so now he says, imitate me. Now when I first read that and heard that, it seemed uh, rather odd to me. I would expect him maybe to say, imitate Christ. And the second command, too, seems kind of interesting. I would think him to say, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. And Paul says that at other times. But, but here he says, imitate me. Keep your eyes fixed on people. That seems very out of place to me. Why does Paul tell them to imitate him? Well, I think he does that for two reasons. First of all, I think if you look at the actions of Christ and the rest of Philippians, 
you see that those are not things that we can imitate. If you look at later on at verse 20 in chapter 3, what, how is Christ described? The Savior, right? We can't imitate that. We, he, Christ did something in his saving work that none of us can do. And so Paul's not telling us to imitate that. If you look at chapter 2 and the beautiful passage that we looked at leading up to, in, in Advent, leading up to Christmas, this beautiful passage of Christ, the Son of God coming down, saving us on the cross, and being exalted. That's not something that we can imitate. We are not the Son of God clothed in human form. And so I think Paul first says, well, imitate me because the, the Christ that I'm laying before you is doing things that you cannot imitate. And secondly, I think Paul says, imitate me because he is confident in who he is in Christ. And I think this is the important one. Paul knows that, that imitating him, in imitating him, in a way you are imitating Christ. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul again says, be imitators of me. But he says, as I am of Christ. And so the assumption in Paul's mind is, imitate me insofar as I am imitating Christ. You see how that works? Don't, don't imitate me if I'm out killing people. Don't imitate me if I'm out lying to people. Imitate me because I imitate Christ. And so that's why Paul says imitate me. Paul knows who he is in Christ. And he's allowing the power of Christ to shine forth through him and through his actions. So Paul says imitate him. And the second command that he says... Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Keep your eyes fixed on it. Notice, here again, people. People among you who are following our example. So, imitate me, and I know that there are already people among you who are imitating me. He's already talked about one of them in chapter 2, Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2, a Philippian who was traveling with Paul. He, Paul was, or Epaphroditus was imitating Paul. And, and Paul says, there's someone who is an example to you. And now here he says, keep your eye on that person. Because, and notice what he says, because of those who walk according to the example you have in us. So, keep your eyes fixed on those people. And I think this is a, a beautiful picture of, of how church should work and how church leadership is. There are people in your church who serve as an example, who are living out the things that Paul says you should be doing. Living out the gospel in their lives. There are people in this congregation who are doing that. So Paul says, keep your eye fixed on them. And why should you be keeping your eyes fixed on them? What about them should you be looking at? And he says, those who walk according to the example. It's, it's conduct. This idea of walking is, is the conduct, your daily life. They are allowing the gospel to be lived out in their daily lives. It's evident. Who they are in Christ is evident to those around them. So keep your eyes fixed on them. So those are the two commands. But why does he give those commands? Why, I mean, why, why is he kind of closing out the letter saying, saying do this? Well, Notice what he says in verse 18. For 
many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So Paul says, imitate me and keep your eyes fixed on the people who are living the gospel out in their lives because there are people who are doing the exact opposite. There are people who are not walking according to the example you have in us. There are people who are not wanting to imitate me. As Paul says in chapter 1, there are people who are not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's the contrast that he's, he's already setting up with, with how you walk. But he says there are people among you who, aren't, who are doing the exact opposite. And he says, notice that notice two things. One, that these are people he's been telling them about, both in the past, and he says, even now. So I think who he's talking about is the people from the beginning of chapter 3, these Judaizers who, who are coming into the church, telling them, oh, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. I think that's the direct reference that he's making here to these Judaizers. Oh, you want to be saved? You've got to go get circumcised first. Eh, follow the Jewish customs, and then, then that's how you be saved. And Paul says, these are the people who are walking as enemies of the cross. This, this false theology of, of works-based theology, doing other things in order to get to heaven, other than faith in Christ, that is actually walking as an enemy of the cross. I mean, that's, that's severe. That's severe language. That when you place extra things, extra burdens on top of the the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ alone as your way to heaven. That that, that is an enemy of Christ. It's not just uh, something that maybe we shouldn't do, you know, not good. It's it's an enemy of the cross. And so so I think we see who kind of Paul is talking about here. These bad theologians placing extra burden on the gospel. And the second thing to notice in this verse is that the emotion with which Paul talks to these people in Philippi. And we've seen it a couple other times in the book, when Paul says in chapter 2, I'm pouring myself out like a drink offering before you. We see the, the deep love and care that he has for this church. The, the, the church that he helped found. He loves these people. And the last thing he would ever want to see for them is this false gospel to, to creep in and lead them astray. That is one of the most heartbreaking things that a pastor could ever have to endure. To leave a church, to go somewhere else, to get involved in another ministry, and then to hear that his, the church that he poured his life into has been is drifting away from the gospel. Paul loves these people, and it grieves him to think what could happen if, these peop- if the church in Philippi listened to these people. And so... And notice again, it's, it's the manner in which they walk. It's, it's this contrast that he's setting up. These, follow those who walk in our example. Don't follow those who walk in a way that's contrary to the gospel. Their, their lives, the way they carry their lives, is itself contrary to the gospel. And so we see this contrast. And now, what Paul, Paul gives us in verse in verses 19 to the end, I think three realms of thinking, that, that these three realms or categories that these, these people are contrary to the gospel and that their lives are contrary 
to walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Three realms. First, their destiny is contrary to the gospel. Second, their God is con- or, or ruler is contrary to the gospel. And third, their glory, what they glory in, is contrary. So those are the, the three realms of discussion, realms of life, that Paul wants to bring up and say that these people are walking as enemies of the cross. So the first thing he says is their end is destruction. He's talking about their final destiny. When it's all said and done, when life is over for these people, what is their destiny? That's destruction. Very clearly, very simple, very short, but very clear, isn't it? That there's, there's no other way around it. If you're walking as an enemy of the cross, your end will be destruction. Don't ever let anyone ever tell you that the Bible doesn't talk about eternal punishment for those who don't believe in Christ. It's right here. Their end is destruction if you're walking contrary to the gospel. Second, their God is their belly. Their ruler. The thing that guides their life, the thing that they worship is their belly. Now, you could actually take this literally, meaning their gluttony, their, their desire for food. You can make that argument, I think, and some commentators do make that argument, that this, the food is actually driving them. But, but I think it extends beyond that to say that their, their passions or their desires, the things in you that, that drive you, that make you do the things that you do, that drive your decisions, that drive your priorities, those things... Their, their passions are their God. They, they are concerned about those things. And they let those things drive. Things like sex, money, fame, all these desires that, that you could think of. Sometimes even good things, family, get in the way of that. Paul says, those things, if you are walking as an enemy of the cross, are what drives you. Those are what you worship. Those are what you spend your time on. Their God is their belly. And third, he talks about their glory and their shame. What is their glory? Now, I think for when you say they glory in something, it's, it's basically saying, synonymous with saying, they're boasting, or what is their pride in, or what is their boasting in? I think he uses glory specifically to set up the contrast, but understand it as what are they boasting in, what are they taking pride in. And notice he says they glory in their shame. It seems, it seems very weird. What, do, what does he mean by they glory in their shame? Well, uh, I think two things, there's two possibilities. One is that they, they take pride in something that will one day prove to be their shame. So, when they're all said and done, remember, he's already talked about their destiny. Their destiny is destruction. So when, when they're standing before God, and they come to him, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? The things that they will boast in, that they will put forth before God and say, this is why you should let me into heaven. Well, when God says no, that's not why you get into heaven. That becomes their shame. They glory in something that will prove fruitless in the end. But I think 
Also, too, remember who he's talking about. He's talking about these Judaizers who are coming in, telling the church, oh, you should be circumcised. You have to be circumcised to be saved. So, if you think in the Roman world, which is very influenced by Greek culture, the the human body is actually a, a beautiful, glorious thing to behold. You know, when they wrestled in the, in the arena, they did it naked. So that the, this human body was a good, beautiful, noble thing. And so, for someone in the Roman world, circumcision is a shameful thing. Because you are actually taking this beautiful thing to behold, and you are slicing it. And you are mutilating it, as Paul says earlier in the book. You are cutting it up. You are making that, shame, that beautiful thing and putting it to shame. And Paul says, and the gall of these people, they are actually boasting in that. They are, they are saying, look at me. I am taking this shameful thing and, and I am using this to get me to heaven. That this, this is what's going to make me right with God. And so to, to those around, these, these Judaizers are, are shameful and, and should be put to shame because the thing that they're doing is, is so bad. And Paul says, and they boast in that. And so... We see Paul setting up who these people are. And now he makes the contrast in verse 20 and 21. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven. So we've seen that the destiny of these people is destruction. But he's where, for these, the people now that he wants to contrast, those imitators of Paul, those people who are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, Where is their destiny? He says it's in heaven, right? Our destiny, our citizenship is in heaven. And notice two things. First, he he says is in heaven. He uses the present tense. He doesn't say will be heaven, will be heaven, we'll get there one day. He says, no, no, our citizenship, our current status is in heaven. And so I think that's very important for us to understand that our eventual destiny actually makes a difference in how we live now and what we do now. And isn't that Paul's point, that, that uh, how we walk now should make a difference? And Paul says, yeah, our eventual destiny actually makes a difference in how we live out now. And he uses citizenship. And this is a, Mike mentioned this, when we talked a couple months ago now, when he's talking about chapter one, but citizenship for the Philippians was a very big deal because Philippi was a city not in Rome. So it shouldn't have had the full rights of a, of a Roman citizen. And yet, through, through the Philippians' goodwill, the, the Roman Caesars came in and said, actually, through what you've done, we're going to give you ro- full rights of a Roman citizen. We're going to make it as if Philippi was on Roman soil. That's, that's how you're going to be treated. You have the full rights of a Roman. And so for the Philippians, this was, their Roman citizenship was a very was a point of pride and, and something that they boasted in. Yes, look at us. Paul says, well, no, no. Our citizenship, for those who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, our identifier." The thing that identifies us is actually heaven. That's the important location. That's where we want to live. 
So, our destiny is in heaven. Secondly, what is, we've seen that the God or the ruler of those who walk as enemies of the cross, their belly, their passions. Well, what is for the one who walks in a manner worthy of the gospel, for the citizen of heaven, what is your God or your ruler? Well, he says, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses about as full a name for Christ as you can think of. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, Lord is just another word for ruler. Kurios. It's, it's a, someone who's a, a ruler. And so he's directly ca- contrasting the God or the ruler of those who walk as enemies with those who are heavenly citizens. He says, our ruler is Christ. And we, we're awaiting him to come back and take us to our heavenly home. So it's the challenge. Who, who do we allow to rule us? Do we allow it to, to be Christ to rule us? Are we connected with him? Mike preached on union with Christ. Are we desiring to be unified with him? Or are we allowing our passions and our sinful desires and the things that, that we think are good, are we allowing those things to rule us? That's the contrast Paul's making here. Who is your ruler? Who do you await? What are you waiting for? Waiting for Christ? And third, they glory in their shame. They glory in something that is, uh, they boast that they are circumcised, and, and that's what, what's good. The, the here and now, physical, physical display of your spirituality, that's what they're boasting in. Paul says, well, what do we boast in? Well, notice, what, what do we glory in? Notice what Paul says. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's why I think he uses the word glory in verse 18. Or no, sorry, verse 19. He, he plays on this word glory. He says, they glory in shame, but we should glory in glory. We should glory in the fact, we should boast in the fact that one day this, this thing, this actually lowly, shameful flesh that cuts when you cut it and bleeds when you cut it and, and breaks when you, when you fall, and this lowly, frail thing, he said, we, it's stupid to boast in this now. It's stupid to boast in any kind of outward display of spirituality because this is just a shell. He said, we as heavenly citizens, should be boasting in what we will one day become. That's what we boast in. That this glory is a body that, that will be like the very body of Christ. That's what we boast in. Not the here and now, not the physical dis- outward display of re- religion, but the, the, the future glory that we will have. That's, that's the beauty of being a heavenly citizen, as we'll get something way better than this. And, and how does this happen? How are we transformed? He, he talks about that. He says, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him, that is Christ, even to subject all things to himself. What, what power is he talking about there? Well, it's the power of the resurrection. That's why Mike read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about the resurrection. That's the power that he's talking about here. If you 
If you notice when Mike was reading, and kind of here, that the resurrection does two things. First, it enables Christ to subject all things to himself. That's what, that's what he says here, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That's, the resurrection does that. By conquering death, Christ was declaring there is nothing else in the universe, whether visible, invisible, anything that you can think of, that can withstand that. If death is conquered, death is the most seemingly powerful force ever. I mean, we're all headed towards it. I mean, you, you can't try as you may, and my job is trying to prevent death, but Try as we may, we cannot prevent it. It's inevitable. It's the most powerful thing. And by Christ rising from the dead, he conquered it and subjected it to himself. And if death can't stand his rule, no one, nothing else can. So that's one thing the resurrection did. It enables him to subject everything under his rule. But the second thing is that it allows us to be resurrected as well. It allows for our bodies to be transformed, to be like his. 1 Corinthians says he was the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first one, the first one resurrected. He said, but we follow. When we are connected with him, when we are in union with him, it's why union with Christ is such a big theme in this book. Because when we are unified with him, it enables us to be like he was, to be resurrected in the end. So the resurrection is the power that drives all of this. And so we have the contrast set up between the heavenly citizen and the, the person, the citizen of this world who walks according to a way that is contrary to the cross, walks according to the flesh, as Paul says in other books. But how do you, how do you put yourself in one of those places? Remember, that's what we want to do. How, how do we decide where we get to be? I think two things. First of all, we know that it's the gospel. That it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in that. That ultimately defines where you end up. Which category you're in. If you are believing and trusting in Christ and his sacrifice, his atoning work on the cross, as the only thing that can get us into heaven, then you are already a citizen of heaven. And that is the first thing to understand. And that is the only truth that is most important. But, beyond that, how do we get that to live out in our daily lives? How, how, do we, how does the gospel really affect our daily lives? How do we live, live, walk as a citizen of heaven? Well, notice the one fra- little phrase that I skipped in verse 19. The, uh, and he's describing these enemies of the cross. Well, why, why are they enemies of the cross? Well, what does he say? They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And I think this is the linchpin that Paul uses. It's right in between the two contrasting people. And it's the linchpin. He says, with minds set on earthly things. And it's, isn't it kind of what he's been talking about this whole time? Living as a citizen of heaven and, and focusing on, on the resurrection one day and, and what, what's going to come. That's, that's mindset. The mindset of the believer is probably, I'm thinking, Paul's primary theme in the book of Philippians, or at least one of them. I counted, including this one, nine different references to mindset 
or thinking a certain way or thinking about such things. We're going to look at another one in a couple of weeks. Think about such things. It's, it's our mindset that every day determines which of these two groups we are living in and we are walking in. Is our mind set on earthly things? Are we focused on the money and the, jo- the daily jo- jobs that we go to? And I know those are important. We, we pay bills from them, and, and we have to be good stewards of the jobs and the money that we have. And we shouldn't be slacking off at work because we're just focused on you know, floating around on clouds one day. Well, that, that's no good. But what Paul says, no, our mindset should be on heavenly things not set on earthly things. That's what our, our goal should be, to be that citizen, the heavenly citizen, to allow that to work itself out in our lives. So that's, that's the question, I think, for all of us this morning. And I think that's the question of this book, is where is your mindset? Where are you focused on your citizenship mattering? So let's pray. Gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. and We thank you for the work of Christ on the cross that rescues us. And Lord, we know, we know this, and it's easy for us to, to say that we agree with this. But Lord, when it, when it comes to our daily lives and the daily decisions that we make, and the things that we prioritize, and the things that we follow, Father, it becomes easy for us to forget that we are citizens of heaven. And we often, too often, walk, walk as enemies of the cross. Father, we ask that your Spirit would work in our hearts. Remind us of who we are in Christ. The bond that we have in Christ. That we will one day be resurrected to a heavenly body, to a glorious body that is like Christ himself. Father, these are glorious truths of the gospel. And these are truths that should make a difference each and every day of our lives. And we thank you for it. Would you remind us, would you teach us, would you encourage us through your truth? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.